Is it test, test? There we go. Can everybody hear me? Thank you. Yeah. So welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship Wednesday night. Let's open up in prayer and, and we'll get started with the study. Father, we, um, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word as we study it tonight. Father, we thank you for your word you've preserved for us and we pray that it would have its way in us. It would cause us, it would draw us into intimacy with you. That it, if we study it together, it wouldn't simply be more knowledge we gain for our minds, but it would be intimacy we gain in our soul. That you would move by your spirit through it and touch our souls and that we would seek to understand and, uh, and, and actually live what it is you're speaking. Lord, we, um, as we study this prayer tonight, I pray that we would have a heart of prayer for our own nation. As we see Daniel's obedience to the word of God as he studied, may we follow his example, his witness that is going before us. Help us tonight to, to see and to hear these things and to act upon them in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, so... Um, Remind me, I'm going to announce this now, but remind me at the end to announce it again, just to, um, to uh, so everybody knows. Next week, we're going to do something a little bit special. Um, Zeke, Pastor Zeke is doing a special series with the youth, and they're dealing with all different type of spiritual phenomenon, and he asked me if I would do a lesson on the watchers. Um, and so I said, Sure. Love to do a lesson on the watchers, so we're going to actually be joining the youth next week. So we'll, of course, we'll sit in the back. You know, we'll have seats in the back, but um, you know, there'll be some Q and A time. And 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 uh, so, if you never actually got a chance to see how youth service operates, it'll be a great chance to see that as well. But um, that way, because um, the watchers are very much a characters and part of of who we're studying here, and um, uh. And so we'll have we'll have some fun with that. But remind me that we're going to do that next week, and then we'll jump and do the second half of uh, of Daniel. So tonight we're we're going in chapter nine of Daniel. Um, we're we're only going to get to the first half, get through the first half of it, and I'll give all the characteristics and why in, in just a minute. But um, uh, but just if y'all will help me at the end to to announce that one more time, so we will make sure everybody make sure everybody's clear on it. All right, so. We're on chapter 9. We're going to, like I said, we're going to do the first half. Daniel 9 is kind of broken into, um, oops, what's going on here? So it's not changing. Tell me when. There we go. Um, uh, it, Daniel 9 is broken into kind of two halves. The first half is Daniel's prayer, and then there's this incredible revelation Daniel has. And and when we get into that, the revelation is going to take a lot more time to, to deal with that. And so it's a little bit longer chapter. We'll deal with that separate. Um, we'll see. But the prayer is literally the setup for it. And we'll see why tonight. It's pretty amazing. And so um, our, my main source I'm using, as I talk about every week, is Dr. Wendy Witter's work. Um, we're using the Lagos Mobile Ed course that she did uh, on on the book of Daniel. That's, what, that's my main source I'm using. Of course, you know I use a, a several other sources as well. But. Um, I typically will mention them as we go through it. All right, so that said, uh, I have a very brief uh, overview tonight. I'm kind of really pared back on our overview, just on a few questions. So let's start with this. Who can tell me 
any of the three points of the theology of Daniel. Sovereignty of God. Very good. So that's so three, six, nine points for, for Marco to start. Nine points. Who can tell me another? Exactly. The, the continuing care of God's people. Uh, and now why is that an issue for the book of Daniel? Why is that an issue, the continuing care of God's people? Yeah, they've been, it's exile shock. They, they've literally been carried out of the land and, um, and, and lost everything. Uh, and so it's like, where's God? Where's God? This is definitely one of those books that's, uh, that you, you, I heard this today. I love this. I heard it today. We need to differentiate between God operating in our life and God operating in this big plan. What may happen in our life, for the good or for the bad, is but a small piece of a big good plan God has. But what we do is we focus on that piece which is us and miss the fact that we're a part of something far bigger. Far bigger. Um, and this is what's going on here. Um, uh, God is, have, is unveiling. And this happens in Daniel. We're talking about this, this unveiling. And yet, Daniel plays a very real part in, in the stage in his life for bringing about the next step. And that's going to be important in tonight's uh, study in this chapter. Um, so the continuing care for his people. And so what's the, what was the third point that for theology that we get out of this? So I'm sorry, that's 18 points there. Nine and nine is 18. Yeah, uh, theology through story. Theology through story, learning from narrative. Uh, there's there's so much in the scriptures that the, the scriptures uh, don't are not a theology textbook. The scriptures teach the theology by telling the stories, what the authors include, what they don't include, how they include it, what's being said, what is repeated other places, and how it all connects. That's how it teaches theology, and so we get we're getting a lot of that from Daniel here. All right, so. Um, I am looking at the wrong one. Hang on here. There we go. Now I've got the right one. Um, All right. So, again, like I said, I'm only going to do a a quick overview. We're going to look at the overview. We're going to use the work of Dr. John Lennox in the overview who came up with and he divides this into a part A and part B, where we have these parallels going on in the book. Uh, the part A is Daniel coming into the Babylonian court. Part B, chapter 6, corresponds as Daniel comes into the Medo-Persian court. What happens is he comes in, there's a conflict. There's a court conflict in both, and in both he's vindicated. The first one has to do with the food. The second one has to do with worship. Then, then Daniel moves chapters 2 and 3 to two images. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the great colossal man, God telling the story of history, ultimately the kingdom of God conquering. And then Nebuchadnezzar raising up a golden image and, sh- and the conflict that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to in, in choosing uh, courageous faith not to bow down. This is contrasted with the two, the vi- the two visions of beasts. In chapter 7, we have four beasts that corresponds directly with the, the image. Um, 
And then in chapter 8, we have the two beasts, uh, um, which, uh, which narrowing down a smaller piece in history. And, th- and we studied all that the last couple of weeks. Then we had two kings disciplined. Who remembers who the fir- those two kings were disciplined? So what was the first of the two kings that were disciplined? Nebuchadnezzar. That's right, 22 points. So Nebuchadnezzar was the first one. And what, did, what was the ultimate result in his discipline? Yeah, he re- redemption. He repented. He repented of his ways. And then the second king that was um, uh, uh, that was uh, that was um, uh, disciplined. Who was that? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. That's right. Um, and and he's going to come up again tonight. We're going to see. Um, uh, and what happened to him? He was destroyed. And ultimately, what we learn from this. Is that God do what? Yeah, yeah, he got hammered. <laughs> yeah. He got hammered. He got destroyed. Handwrite. This is and this is where we get. Anybody ever heard the handwriting's on the wall? That's where we get that saying from. We get it right from that chapter. The handwriting's on the wall. I mean, it's all over. I I, I knew it was over. The handwriting was on the wall, and uh, it was a terrifying event. And so he becomes this type and shadow of wicked kings. And God's judgment of wicked kings, demonstrating God's sovereignty. One of the theology of the book, that he has sovereignty even over Gentile kings. Something that would have been foreign thinking in the ancient world. Um, And so that corresponds with two writings explained. And we're going to get into this in detail tonight. Chapter 9, we're going to see just how much Daniel is studying the scriptures. How much he's looking into them. How much he's trusting in the word of God. And uh, and this will this will, and how he uses that word in order to actually format his obedience. We'll see that uh, tonight. Hopefully, we'll get to all that. Um, but we also have, and we'll be coming up to this chapters ten, eleven, and twelve. Some more writings: the writing of truth and uh, the eventual destruction of the king, the little horn. Um, that motif that we talked about, and that'll be coming up in future chapters. So that's kind of our overview of the book. Now, all right, four. Uh, 67 points. I used that one before. 68 points. For 68 points, who can tell me uh, what section of the book is written in Hebrew and what section of the book is written in Aramaic? The what? The middle. Okay, yes. The middle is written in what? Aramaic. What, where, what chapter does the Aramaic start? Chapter 2, chapter 2, and what's the last chapter? 7. Chapter 7 is the last chapter. So from 2 to 7 is written in a different language. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and they switch to Aramaic, and they go back to Hebrew in chapter 8 through the end. And, uh, and so, that, now that section that is written in Aramaic, who can tell me what that section, the, the, the literary style it's written in? It's a big fancy word. Chiastic structure. Chiastic structure. I'm not giving out points. I'm sorry. 51 points. So, uh, um, a chiastic structure. Now, that's, again, big fancy word. What does it mean? It means the main point is where? In the middle. In the middle. So, we start off at a point, we get to the main point, and we return in a mirror image from where we started. Right? And so, um, and so uh, that's, that's in the middle of the structure. Now, why am I saying all this and reminding this? Because... What we have with the book of Daniel, and so much in the, in, in the uh, scriptures, 
is that Scripture is very often written in such a way that how it's written, not just what's written, but how it's written has a message. How they put it together has a message. This is genius level writing. And, you know, we, you know, if you just picked up the book of Daniel, read it in English or, or any language, you wouldn't pick up on this. You wouldn't see this. You wouldn't notice it. But that's why we talk about it, to pick this up. This is really amazing stuff. All right. So let's get into um, chapter 9. So chapter 9, and we'll, we'll actually read it in a few minutes, but I want to introduce it. Um, a lot of times I like to read it first. This, this time I want to do the setup. And then when we read it, we're understanding what we're reading. Um, so we're going to read the first half of chapter 9. And this is Daniel's prayer. This is unique in the entire book. This section is very different than everything else we're reading in the book. If you'll notice, in this chapter, there's no threat of an oppressive regime. He's, there, there, he's not thinking about oppressive regimes through this. He, and what's he, what he's doing, he's reflecting on the prophecies of Jeremiah. And we're going to look those up. We're going to look at them and see them and see what he read or would have likely have read what we, th- uh, um, what we have of what Jeremiah read and how it corresponds and, and see how did Daniel develop his thinking from that. Um, now, this is a lengthy prayer. This is like from, chapter, from verses 4 all the way to 19. Uh, is all by itself is a prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It's an incredible prayer. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of supplication. Now, it's, you know, in chapter 2 and chapter 6, we've got Daniel praying, right? In chapter 2, when, when he finds out that, uh, that he's about to die, and, unless they can hear from God as to what the dream means, man, is, are they praying? You know they're praying, just like we would be. And, but we don't know what he prayed. We only know what he said after he prayed. Chapter 6, the same thing. We see, him, we see him praying again. But again, we don't know what he prayed. We only saw uh, the results of it, what he said after he prayed, his praise, his you know thanksgiving to God. Here is one of those moments when we actually get an intimacy into somebody's mind, into somebody's heart. We actually get a, a get a door that this is his prayer. He's pouring out this communication between him and God, and so we get this this moment that we can actually emulate as we see how he is relating to God and why he's relating to God the way that he is. We're like, wow, that can apply to our lives. We can put that in place in our lives. Um, so we actually get to hear the prayer. I would submit to you in the Gospels. Um, uh, sorry, I wasn't on the same slide. In the Gospels, John chapter 17 is very similar to this. We read all throughout the Gospels, Jesus goes up into the mountain and prays, or Jesus goes here and prays. And we, we see this, and we see, you know, he teaches them how to pray and gives them a prayer. But in John 17, this is a chapter, the entire chapter, where it's just intimacy between him and the Father. And we get this window into this prayer life of Jesus talking to the Father. Well, this is similar. We're getting the same kind of window right here tonight as we're looking at this. Um, and so what's fascinating guys, is, is that this prayer prompts a divine revelation event, which we'll get into next time. There's this huge divine revelation that happens because of his intimacy in prayer. Now, every other revelation we have in the book, it starts divinely first, and then Daniel responds. Right? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nobody was going, hey, pray for Nebuchadnezzar to have a dream. He just had a dream. You know, uh, twice he had dreams. Various things happen. The handwriting appears on the wall. It's not until afterwards they start praying. In this instance, what's distinct and different is prayer itself is 
the impetus that starts spiritual response that leads to incredible revelation. God hears our prayers and responds to them. And this happens in in an, an amazing way. All right, so Daniel's direct action leads to revelation. Um, so those are some of the unique things about this kind of overview. So the prayers, it's kind of simple. It's broken into three sections, and we're going to go through them. There's four segments of the prayer, but there's three sections. First is a historical introduction. Then there's the prayer itself from 3 to 19. And when we go through the prayer, we'll see um, uh, um, the four sections to it. And then the second half of the chapter is this whole revelation about the 70 weeks. Has anybody ever heard of the 70 weeks of Daniel before? Yeah, Dan, yeah. If, if, if there's a whole, all kinds of people will tell you, this is what the 70 weeks are. This is what the 70 weeks are. It's literally probably one of the most convoluted, difficult passages in all of Scripture, trying to figure that out. So we'll take a look at it in different ways to look at it. But we're going to see a key tonight. There is a key that comes from the prayer. And that should be a key for us. There is a key that comes from the prayer. All right. So, um, historically, where are we in Daniel's life? We once again move backwards in time. So, you know, we were, we were in this, everything we've been hearing so far, we had gotten all the way up to the end of the reign of Cyrus in Daniel's life chronologically. Now, all of a sudden, we've added this chapter and we're moving backwards in time again. We're going back to the time of Darius the Mede. We still aren't 100% sure of who he is historically. We also are identifying this king, Ahasuerus, or, or Xerxes. Um, and, and, but the big thing that we see that's going on while he's in this place, all the way back at the time of Darius the Mede, he is reflecting on Dan, Jeremiah's writings. So this is where we are historically. It's taken us backwards. Now, why is that important? Because to know when it happened, when he's reading Jeremiah, Certain things Jeremiah wrote about came to pass. Other things haven't. And Daniel lived through some of those things. By knowing when this prayer was, we can see previous prophecies that have occurred in the lifetime of Daniel and prophecies that haven't yet occurred that tell Daniel, I need to start praying for this. As he sees God's word has come to pass, he becomes a participant in the word of God furthering itself by bringing to prayer those things that have not yet come to pass. Guys, I'm telling you, this is so applicable to our lives, it's not funny. Trust me. Go check this out. Don't trust me. Read it for yourself. Second Peter, chapter 3. Peter says this. We literally can hasten the day Jesus returns by how we live and participate in bringing about the Great Commission. Part of the reason that God has tarried is because the church has not been about accomplishing the Great Commission. There is a fullness of the Gentiles It's in Romans chapter 11. It's in multiple places in the Bible, multiple places. It goes all the way back and finds its root in Genesis with with Jacob's prophecy over Ephraim and Manasseh. But it finds its culmination in, in, in Romans 11 when Paul says, the fullness of the Gentiles, at the fullness of the Gentiles, when Israel receives her Messiah, this is when we'll have resurrection from the dead. This is when Jesus comes back. And we have a part to play in that. 
We have a part to play in that. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't need to know the day or the hour. We need to know what our part is to play. And Daniel's playing his part. Daniel's playing his part. Amen? All right. So, here we go. This is a Daniel 9, verse 2. This is in the first year of his reign. Something about um, uh, uh, Darius the Mede. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel sees this 70 years. He's reading the book of Daniel, I mean Jeremiah, and he sees the 70 years. And so that's, that, that caused him to do something as a result of hearing that prophecy. Um, so what was Daniel's conclusion? 70 years have passed. Um, 70 years have to pass before the exile, uh, before the desolations of Jerusalem. I'm going to go back there and you can read it. It says right there, before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. You know, where did we leave Jerusalem? Nebuchadnezzar, 587, had sacked Jerusalem. Had, the temple was destroyed. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was just one of the most heart-wrenching, heart-rending scenes in Israel's history. And, um, and so th- they're longing for this time when God's going to return them and they're going to be able to rebuild this. So just like we should be longing for the return of Christ when we're in new heavens and a new earth and we're reigning with him. Um, so... Uh, this this conclusion, uh, these are the um, where does he get these words? He gets them because he's reading Jeremiah. So what do you say? We go over and um, read a little bit in Jeremiah here. This is Jeremiah. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet. I'm in Jeremiah 29, in verse one. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. To the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is telling us, he wrote a letter. He took his prophecies, and he wrote them down, and he sent it to, to who? Well, well, Daniel's among the elders, is he not? Daniel would have been one of these recipients. How does he know Jeremiah's prophecy? How does he know his writings? He received them. Jeremiah sent them to him. So he's got them, and he's reading these letters that that he's received from him. Um, uh, So Daniel had access to Jeremiah's letter that was sent to Babylon. All right, so what was in Jeremiah's letter? Now, we don't have the actual letter, but we have sections of the the prophecies of Jeremiah that would have, these these are what would have been in those those letters. So we're going to go take a look at a couple of sections because they, and we'll see how they correspond directly to how Daniel responds, so we, we can know this is the, what uh, um, uh, Daniel would have been reading, the, the type of thing Daniel would have been reading. All right. And they would have been letters, by the way. Okay, so this is extra, extra credit here. So I'm a big extra credit one, 130 points on this one. So a letter would have been in what form? That's it. That's it. She's she's giving me. She's she's back there. We're playing. What do you call that? Um, charades. <laughs> yeah, a scroll. A scroll. Say so y'all have to split it. You got you know, scroll. This would have been in scroll form. She she going like this. I'm like, yeah, that's right. What the? <laughs> no, that was perfect. That was perfect. You're doing good. Uh, all right. So um, so here, let's read from Jeremiah. I'm over in. I'm still in 29. We're going to jump down to verse four. 
Thus says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to the exiles who have been sent up there. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, do you see this theme of multiplying? Where does that theme of multiplying start? This is the beginning. All the way back in the beginning. So God didn't see them leaving the land as having being cut off from their inheritance. Huh. They did. He didn't. He's giving them the same command that, that was given to Adam, that was given again to Noah, and it was it is passed on. All right, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now that's interesting. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Well, where do you think Paul gets it when he tells us to pray for those in authority in Rome? Uh, in Romans. Pray for those in authority over you. Why? Because it will then go well for you if you do that. Hmm. This is going all the way back to Jeremiah. Verse 6. Uh, did I do that? Yeah, verse 6. We're in verse uh, 8. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who were among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Wouldn't you all like to know what those prophecies were? He's like, what were they prophesying? Well, I can tell you anyway. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Wow, what kind of message is that to hear after you've just been carried off in exile? I know the plans I have for you. So what must, what must those false prophets have been prophesying? You know, God's going to destroy Babylon. God's going to get us out of here. Don't, don't marry and have children. Get ready to leave. And God's saying, no, settle down. You're going to be here for 70 years. You're going to be here for a, an entire human lifetime. The normal human life. This is how long you're all going to be here. And But while you're here... Bless those who were here. Bless them. Pray for them. Allow your prosperity to be their prosperity. Because when they prosper, you will prosper. He said, but there will be a time that I will call you out and I will bring you out. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So at some point, there's going to be a time to call on God to get free. At some point, there's going to be this moment when you will need to pray. And when will it be? After 70 years. For I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Isn't that interesting? It's prophesied. What was prophesied? Settle down. Be there. Be a part. What did Daniel do? 
He was prime minister. You talk about settling down and getting with the program. <laughs> he was like, you know, number two in the land. He sought to bring prosperity. Why? Because God's word said to do that. But when it came time and the fullness of time was there, what did he do? What did God say to do? Pray. What did he do? Prayed. All right. There's another place. Let's take a look over here in uh, Jeremiah 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, harem. They will be totally destroyed as an offering to God and make them a, an, a, a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how long? Seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now, we st- having studied the first half of the chapter, did Nebuchadnezzar come to understand that Yahweh is God? He, that the God of Israel was the God of the whole world. Yes. Did Belshazzar know for a fact who the God of Israel was and had seen and demonstrated his power? Yes. Did he ignore that and deny him and defile him anyway? Yes. And what did God do? He said, let me show you what I'm going to do. He fulfilled the word of the prophecy. All right, verse 13. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So, what did we say? Daniel had a copy of this letter. He had these prophecies um, first of all, he had that prophecy in Jeremiah 25 before the exile, right? He knew that was going to happen before it happened. Jeremiah's in the land prophesying, telling. He knew that ahead of time. What came to pass of all those prophecies at this point? Remember, we're in Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede's part of the Medo-Persian Empire. What empire conquered Babylon? For 91 points. What empire conquered Babylon? The Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. So what had happened to Babylon? It was destroyed. What did Jeremiah prophesy? It was going to be destroyed. So catch this. I want you to catch this for a minute. You're living in Israel, in the ancient world, and you have the mindset that this geography, this land, this nation belongs to Yahweh. You know he's the God of heaven and earth. There is no God greater than him. And a prophet comes along and tells you, God, who's your God, who you're disobeying, he's willing to give up his own name in this land for the sake of your obedience. And you're thinking in your mind, ain't no way. Ain't no way that would be so culturally backwards when this would happen. For a God to allow, why? Because if the Babylonians came down here, then Marduk is greater than Yahweh. And there's no way Yahweh would allow Marduk to look bigger than him. There's no way he would allow Marduk to look like a bigger god than him. So no way. He's not going to allow this to conquer. And Jeremiah stands up and says, I'm going to tell you. 
Not only is it going to happen, I'm going to tell you exactly who it's going to happen by. It's going to happen by the nation of Babylon. Not only is it going to be that nation, it's going to be a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that's going to come out in here, and he's going to do this. And you're going to see that my word's going to come to pass, just like I'm telling you, even though you're refusing to believe me now. But then there's going to be a time when that nation's going to be destroyed, and you're going to see that too. And then after that, it's going to be a period of 70 years, and I'm going to bring you back. But if I'm going to bring you back, you need to be praying so that I might do it. Do you all see that? See, it's easy for us to sit here and read all this after the fact. What would it be like living through it? Well, I'll tell you what it would be like living through it. How many of us actually believe Jesus is coming back? How many are praying? How many are actively saying, I need to be involved in the Great Commission because that's how Jesus comes back? Because that's what the Word of God says. And we are no different than the Israelites in their time when they had the Word of God before it came to pass than we are now with the Word of God before it has come to pass. It's easy to sit here and look at them and go, well, how could they have done that? I mean, why couldn't they know that? I mean, huh, wow. It's different when we think about it from our perspective. All right, so. Some things are accomplished from prophecy, but other things aren't. Israel is not yet returned to the land. But before that can happen, what did the people need to do? They needed to confess. They needed to repent. They needed to call upon the Lord. And then God will fulfill the promise to Israel. Right? Isn't that what Jeremiah says? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's saying, look, this is going to happen after 70 years. He just doesn't say after 70 years, I'll come do it. He says, after 70 years, you, when your heart is chasing after me and following me, then I will do it. It is conditional. It is conditional. There are conditions for it to happen. So what does Daniel do after reading Jeremiah's word? How does he act? What's he do? He begins to confess the, Nash, the sins of the nation. He begins to seek the Lord, the very thing God commanded in order to restore the nation. You see, if we didn't know all this, and we just open up to chapter 9 of Daniel, and we just see Daniel start praying, we go, man, that guy could really pray. Well, that's a cool prayer. And it is, and he could, and it is an amazing prayer. But how many of us knew this was in direct obedience to the prophecy of the Word of God? I mean, it's new. He was studying God's word to want to see God actively work in the world and move in the world in entire nations. And it was going to happen because he was participating with the word of God in prayer by the spirit of God. Huh. So Daniel intercedes on behalf of Israel to the Lord. And when he does, he becomes both a prophet and a priest. He's, why? Because he is one standing in the gap. He is interceding. He's interceding on behalf of the nation. Um, he, he is, uh, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, all right, so, oh, where am I? How am I doing? All right, the meaning of the number 70 in verse 2. We need to, we need to take a look at this for a minute. Um, there are three ways to interpret the 70 years, and it's really important we know those three ways. Because most of us have probably heard of the first way and think that that's the right way to do it. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you it could be this way. It could be this way. 
But there are other ways to look at it that actually are going to give us some clues and hints to when we get to 70 in the revelation that's coming in the next half of the chapter, which we won't get to tonight. Everybody follow that? Did that make sense? Did I lose you? Okay. All right. All right. So there's three ways. The first way is this. Literally. It was a literal 70 years. And so what that would require, that would require trying to find a date when the exile started. And then so you, you look back and you calculate the time. Well, the problem is, is the exile happened in three parts. The first part of the exile happened in 605. Daniel was carried off in 605 B.C. Then the second part happened in 597 B.C. Ezekiel and a bunch of uh, and a lot of others, the elders and um, uh, ruling authorities were carried off in 597 B.C. But then there was a third exile that happened again in 587 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came down to the three-year siege against Jerusalem and sacked it. So which one is it? Hmm. Because if we're going to start the count, which current do we start from? Now, once we've done that, then you have to choose a corresponding end date. Is the end date 539 the time, in Daniel's time when Babylon falls, because Je- Je- Jeremiah prophesied the fall of Babylon? Or is it in 538 when Cyrus actually gives the decree for them to return? Or is it in 516 when they actually dedicate the temple because a big part of the prophecy is the temple would be rebuilt so which one is it it all depends on where you start and where you end right um so uh there is another way of looking at the 70 years now i do think we can get there with a literal 70 years but i think there's another way to look that actually meets the type of literature that we're looking at better now it's not the second way it's the third way but the second way is close and the second way is also important. It's also important because it's scriptural, and we'll see what I mean by that. So 70 years represents a round number. So uh, not, in other words, not a literal 70 years, but just like, it's like, um, like uh, you know, I can do that in 70 years, meaning like I can do that in a lifetime. It represents a normal lifetime. And we're going to look at a scripture in, in uh, Psalm 90 where that, in fact, is the case where it just represents a normal, a normal human lifespan. And so that makes um, the date 605 through 539, which would be literally 66 years, that would connect to Daniel's time in exile. Daniel was in exile how long? His whole life. He was basically, from the time he was a teenager, he passed away in exile. It's, it's, it's uh, pretty much his lifetime. He lived uh, for almost all his life. So the normal human life. Let's take a look at this in Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we will fly away. See how the scripture says that the years, the normal, a normal human life says 70, 80 years. Which, quite frankly, still falls true today. Normal human lifespan, 70 to 80 years, something like that. Um, when you're taking averages. Um, so it can just represent the normal human lifespan. But there is a third way, and this third way would be symbolic. Now, the symbolisms can be very similar to the second option. Um, when the second option is just giving an average, this is actually giving a symbol, and it symbolizes a normal human lifespan. Um, now, why is that a good option? Because we're, where is chapter 9 found? What type of writing is it in the middle of? We talked about this. The first half is all stories. It's narrative. The second half has all these, you know, like these weird animals with wings and 
and uh, these visions and these dreams and what type of language, what type of, of scripture is that? Do what? Uh, so it's prophetic in nature, but what makes it not prophecy is you never hear God actually speaking. It makes it a little bit different type of literature. It's a good guess, though. Yeah, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Anybody heard of the apocalypse? That's, that's the, the revelation is also called the apocalypse. The Greek word for, that we get for revelation is the apocalypse. And so apocalyptic writing is this writing that uses lots of symbols to mean things. What did we see? We saw this lion with two wings. Did it mean that a lion with two wings was going to conquer the earth? No. It meant Babylon was going to conquer the earth. We saw the leopard with four wings. You know, did that mean there was going to be a leopard with four wings actually going around? No. That, that was, you know, um, the way I look at it, that was Greece. So, um, so it's, they symbolize things. All right. So this number is going to come up in the second half of the chapter. It's going to come up again. Now, what's fascinating is that this number had significance in ancient Babylon. This was a very significant number in ancient Babylon. Let me ask you a question. Who remembers this? This is taxing the memory. I'm going to put a good number on this one. This will be worth 80, 86 points. 86 points for this one. When Daniel came into the land, what was he required to do for three years when he first came into the land? 86 points. He had to study everything about Babylon, Babylon's literature, Babylon's culture, Babylon's mythology, the way of the Chaldeans, the way of the magicians. He had to study all that. So do you think he might have learned about the importance of the number 70 there? Hmm. And so not only in Scripture, but in the ancient Near East as a whole, and especially in Babylon, the number 70 represents fullness. It represents totality. It represents a wholeness to it, a fullness to it. All right. So here we are in Second Chronicles. Check this out. This is, in, um, this is written after they come back. So they've come back out of exile, and the chroniclers writes this. Therefore, he brought up against them, and he's, he's, he's writing the history. He's reminding everybody what had happened before they, before they went off into exile. He's writing this. And catch how they, they, they use the 70 years here. Uh, therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians, by the way, the Chaldeans. Uh, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. All the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought back to Babylon. Remember how we learned that in the beginning of Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar took all of those back. And how we, Belshazzar got them all out and defiled him, and that's what led to his judgment, had all those vessels. Um, verse 19. And they burned the house of God, and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Right? Cyrus comes along, and, and Isaiah, Isaiah actually names Cyrus by name in his prophecy. He says, Cyrus is going to set you all free. Actually, by name. Names 150 years beforehand. And, and Cyrus comes along, and, and king of Persia, and sets them all free. Verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. How many days to a Sabbath? 
7. The fullness of a Sabbath. All the days that lay desolate to keep, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 Sabbaths. 70 Sabbaths. 70 rests. 70 rests. Uh, we're not, we're not sure who the author is. It was written by, by, um, um, authors after the, um, exile. We do know that. Now in the first, uh, year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So what's interesting is this passage in Chronicles, it, the timeline it's starting with is 587 B.C., the sacking of Jerusalem. And the destruction of the temple. That's when it's starting. Where it's ending is 539 uh, um, B.C. I put B.E. Sorry, guys. I meant B.C. Um, uh, which is the return to the land. And that's only 48 years. But yet it's referring to it as the 70. So it's using it in a symbolic sense. This is why I read this passage. Because I want us to see how the scriptures itself deals with these different numbers. Is, is everybody good with this? Any questions on this? Everybody clear here? All right. So, Daniel's mulling over this. He's thinking about this. He's reading. He's praying. He's trying to figure this out. And and, it, and this is preparing him for a vision God's going to give him. And again, that, we're going to look at that later. And now we're going to get into the prayer. He starts to pray. And we're going to see, and I'm going to take us through four segments of this prayer. What does Daniel actually pray? And now, now that we have all this background, this is all the background Daniel had, right? Actually, he had a lot more. This is kind of an overview of his background as he's going in to this intimate moment between him and the Father. So we're going to see that it starts with an invocation. And it's going to move to confession. And then in the middle of the prayer, Daniel's going to reflect. He's going to think. And then he's going to petition. This gives us a pattern for prayer. We're, 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 we're declaring the greatness of God. We're invoking God in prayer. We're confessing. We're removing ourselves uh, um, uh, 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 in the midst of prayer, we're reflecting, we're considering God, his promises, who he is, his word, and then we're petitioning. We're calling on him to act, to move. So this is how this prayer is moving here. All right, so let's take a look at the first one. Actually, this is the, the intro to the chapter um, uh, right before he starts praying. This leads us into the prayer. So, in the first year of Darius, the son of uh, Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, do you see he's using exact language that came out of Jeremiah, desolations of Jerusalem? Fascinating. We're getting this illusion not only is he referring to it, but we're getting this, this kind of quote that's coming out of it, right? Namely, 70 years, all right? Then, 
I turned my face to God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He studied the word of God, he trusted the word of God, and then he acted on what he read and studied. And he acted in a way, not simply in a way that's like, oh God, well your word says so, I'm asking you. But it led him to move himself, to live out. And that's what a prophet does. I'm going to bring this up later. But that's what a prophet does. That's what it means to pray prophetically. He literally puts himself in the place of the nation. And again, I'll bring it up later. But he's put mercy with sackcloth, fasting, and ashes. And he begins the prayer with an invocation. He's calling on Yahweh to hear him. He's asking the Lord to hear his prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, chesed, covenant faithfulness, mercy, with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he starts off right away. This quote, this is, this is, I'm going back to this. This is, he's quoting from the Torah. He's quoting from Exodus 34 here. He's going way back. The, the, he's, he's calling on the character and nature of God himself. It is God who is covenant keeping. It is God who has chesed, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness with us. We fail and we come to his, it's him that pours out his endless grace. Notice, this is a call upon God's grace. For those that think grace didn't come till Jesus, Moses is calling, I mean, Daniel is calling on God's grace. We have nothing to stand here except two things, Lord. Your word and your grace by which you've given us that. Your faithfulness to keep this about. Your fact that you made a covenant. We've broken it, but you made it and you're going to keep it. He's invoking on the promises of God. The oaths, of the, the, the promises of God, the prophecies of God, and the oaths of God. All right. So the confession. This moves us to the next part. And what he's going to do, he confesses everybody's sin. He's literally confessing everybody's sin from the palace to the street. He's laying it all out there, what we've all done. He's confessing on behalf of the nation. Did you know you could confess on the behalf of others? Anybody ever cry out for our nation? Everybody call on God not to judge what deserves to be judged? And cry out for awakening? Well, this is what Daniel's doing here. All right, let's take a look at it. Verse 5. We Now notice this. He's putting this third person, including himself. I mean, uh, first person plural, including himself. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Now, what's fascinating is, who is this praying? Daniel's the one praying. If you go over to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says there's only three righteous people on earth, and Daniel's one of them. And he's the one saying, I'm part of this wickedness. Fascinating. He's standing in the gap. He's identifying with his nation. And he's calling out on behalf of his nation. Turning aside. We have acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. 
To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. I want us to notice something. The path to salvation is not a moment in which we receive a spiritual touch from God and our eyes are open. The path to salvation is the moment that we realize we are in rebellion to the living God and apart from his salvation, we have no hope. And then our eyes are open to his grace. Just like Daniel just said. We are in rebellion to you, but you are merciful. That's the salvation we need. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us uh, by his servants, the prophets. And all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Now, he says all Israel refused. Who was the one who came into the land and refused to eat unclean food? Daniel, desiring to keep God's laws and to obey, even in a pagan nation. Who was the one who refused to bow down and would be willing to be thrown into a fiery furnace? And yet they're including themselves amongst their nation in crying out for the mercy of God. Why? Because that's what the cross is. That's what the cross is. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become The righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. They are demonstrating the cross. They are taking on that God might show mercy. They are interceding. All right, so that takes us to the next section. Now he's going to begin to reflect. He's considering the punishment the people have suffered. He's considering the fulfillment of the covenant curses. There were curses in the covenant. If you go back and you read um, uh, Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy... When God made a covenant, in fact, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, is anybody um, familiar with how a covenant was made in the ancient world? Anybody? All right, so what they would do, they would take animals, and they would cut them in two, and they would lay them on either side like this, okay? And it would create this pathway down the mountain. That's what covenant means, to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant. It's just cutting these animals and laying them on either side. And what they say is, we're going to have an agreement. This agreement is, is beyond a contract, Okay? This is an agreement that we are both going to agree to this, all right? And we're going to agree to A, and we're going to agree to B. Here's all the stipulations, and here's how we're going to know it. And now what we're going to do is we're going to walk between these animals, and afterwards, by walking between these animals that we've cut in two, what we're saying is, may it happen to these us as has happened to these animals if either one of us breaks this covenant. If either one of us violates this covenant, may it be done to us as was done to these animals. That's the significance of a covenant, which, by the way, is the significance of marriage. But that's a different story for a different time. So um, so he's thinking about the covenant curses. Well, when God made this covenant with Israel, he gave this whole list of blessings. Here's the result. If you keep it, here's all the blessings. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But if you don't, here's all the curses. Now, the cool thing is, is God gave something called repentance. So if you didn't, you could repent, and God in his mercy could restore. But they had gone beyond that. They had gone to the point where they refused. And now God had no choice but to bring about the curses. And so Daniel's going to reflect on these things. He's going to think about them. 
And ultimately, do you, does anybody know what the, 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 the apostles tell us Jesus became on the cross? The, the Lamb of God in, in, in light of covenant curses? A curse. The apostles tell us, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus literally became the covenant curses we deserve because of our rebellion. He became that curse in our behalf so that we could go from uh, being an enemy of God to being a family member of God. This is beautiful. This is amazing. All right, so let's look at his reflection. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses that the servant of God have, have poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Notice what he's saying there. By the the word gaining insight from studying, living out the revelation of God's word. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready for calamity, has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So he's reflecting. He's thinking back. This is what happened. This is exactly what happened. Why? Because God is just. Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees the week before he dies. And he says to the Pharisees, he says, guys, you study the scriptures. And he goes, I'm amazed that you do some things that are so detailed, far beyond the scriptures, because you're studying them so hard. But guys, you miss some of the biggest things in the word of God. You miss the fact that there's justice, mercy, and faith. You're taking care of all these details and you let go of the big stuff. What he's saying is the character of God is just. God is going to bring about his justice. He's also merciful. He's going to offer mercy. And he's also faithful. His word will come to pass. And how do we respond to that? We respond to his faithfulness with faith. And by responding in faith, we receive his mercy. And when we receive his mercy, we're made just. We're made just. And so this, in reflecting on this, God has carried out his justice. But in his mercy, he's crying out for his faithfulness, that through his faithfulness, they might be made, receive mercy, and that they might enter into his righteousness through his mercy. And so he pleads, he comes to petition the Lord. Oh, now, O oh Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly, O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Lord, long enough has your name been denigrated in the world. Raise your name up again, he's saying. Make your name great again by keeping your word, by fulfilling your word, by bringing your mercy to, to, to those of us who don't deserve it. Now, therefore, O oh uh, uh, oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear in here. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our, because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We're calling upon you for your mercy, Lord, that your name would be glorified again. Can I tell you what the number one purpose of the gathering of the church is? It's not the edification of the body. It's the glorifying of the name of God. Now, that will the edification of the body happen as a result? Absolutely it will happen as a result. But the purpose is to glorify the name of God, to publicly present a glorification of the name of God. And when we do that, the body is edified. Because you can't bring glory to his name and not edify his body. But if we gather together for the primary purpose of edifying the body, then we're actually gathering for ourselves and not him. Which, why not just watch online? Why actually gather? I can edify myself as easy for myself as I can with other people. But if I want to publicly declare the greatness of God, if I want to be with the people, I've got to be with the people of God to do that publicly. Do you see the distinction? And this is what he's saying. There's nobody in Jerusalem anymore. There's nobody in the temple anymore. This is where your name is on earth. Ezekiel said Jerusalem is the, the center of the world because God's name is there. This was prior to the pouring out of the Spirit of God. They say, there's no one there to glorify your name. Have mercy on us that we could return and rebuild and see your name glorified in that place. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That's his prayer. All right, so let's close out with a few observations. Let's go through this. We've got a few observations. Is that not an amazing prayer now that we've taken it this way and broken it down? We're seeing intimacy into the heart of Daniel. We're seeing how he studied the Word of God to even know how to pray. We're seeing him trusting the Word of God. We're seeing him wanting to be an active part of the Word of God coming to pass. These are all things we're going to mention here. So it's fascinating because this prayer is the only place in the entire book of Daniel where the the actual name of God, Yahweh, is used. And it's used in prayer. The calling upon God. Now, why is that fascinating? Because what is he asking God to make great? What is what is his name? He wants his name to make be made great again. And and so is how is he referring to him? By his name. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? So he's got some specific uh, concerns. He's he, what is he concerned with? He's concerned with this relationship between Israel and God. And he draws on this relationship in order to express prayer. I mean, you know, God is concerned about his body. We can draw on the relationship God desires with us as we call on him in prayer. Daniel acts like an Old Testament uh, prophet. What is he doing? He literally is representing uh, the people before God. He's taking their actions on himself. I don't know how many people are familiar with this. Very often the prophets in the scripture are required to do things um, that actually act out what they're calling the nation to do. I'll give you an example. Um, Hosea, God was 
called Hosea to prophesy to Israel, the northern kingdom, and they had become uh, completely um, uh, rebellious. Uh, He called it an adulterous relationship because they were so idolatrous. They followed all the other gods. And he said, Hosea, so that they can see what I mean by this, you need to marry an unfaithful woman. You need to marry this woman who will be unfaithful to you to demonstrate how Israel is unfaithful to me. Ezekiel, here's one that breaks my heart. This will break your heart. Ezekiel told the Lord. Ezekiel was prophesying. He was one of the first exiles. There's a contemporary of Daniel. This will break your heart. He's up in Assyria, uh, um, uh, Babylon uh, uh, by the river Kabar. He lives in that region up there. And he's calling on the people to repent. He's calling on them to repent. He said, God's going to destroy Jerusalem if you don't repent. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And God tells him, uh, Ezekiel, son of man, calls him son of man. I'm about to destroy Israel. I'm about to destroy Jerusalem. Which means I'm literally going to kill my bride. And so therefore, your bride's going to die. And his wife died. He lived out his prophecy. He lived out his prophecy. Now, why is that important? Because for Christians to carry out the Great Commission, the key to carrying out Great Commission is sacrifice. Why? Does sacrifice earn something? No, it doesn't earn anything. It's the sacrifice of Christ that earned everything. But how are we to live? By the character and nature of Christ. And what was the power of Christ to change the world? His sacrifice. So when we take serious the Great Commission, when we put ourselves in the place of others and the things that they've done and what they've gone through and where they are, and we make those sacrifices, we are literally bringing the cross of Christ to bear. The Celtic Church, when it formed, it was in, I don't know how many people are familiar. The Celtic Church is a church that formed in Ireland. Remember heard of St. Patrick? Anybody heard of St. Patrick? And he was he was um, he was in the UK, and he was uh, he was uh, carried off to to Ireland as a slave, and lived there many years as a slave, and he escapes, he becomes a believer in the UK, and he has this burden for those that enslaved him. Because they were a completely paganized people. Completely. The Druids, all the idolatry, completely paganized. And he went back as a missionary into Ireland to bring the gospel. And uh, a powerful revival went throughout over the centuries through the Celtic church. Now, there were a lot of martyrs during this time in the church. And the Celtic church, the Irish church, didn't have martyrs. Martyrs being people who actually died for their faith. And so they actually came up with three categories of martyrship. Category number one was to go off and to live a life of um, like, a, like a monk in solitary and doing nothing but interceding and prayer and constant solitude and constant dedication to the lord on behalf of of um his work in the world to leave everything else aside sacrifice number two they 
there were individuals who then took and said, we are literally leaving here and going to take this gospel wherever we can take it and started one of the greatest missionary movements in the world. Many, many never heard from again. Now, I mean, they could have lived full lives. They, they just couldn't have, maybe not have communicated. But many were never heard from again. Never heard from again. Sacrifice. You see, um, you and I are a portal to heaven. Prayer opens a portal to heaven. It opens that portal for God to work through. Now you say, what do you mean a portal to heaven? We studied this when we studied Revelation. Where are our prayers? They literally come up as incense before God. It tells us. Through the altar of incense. Through the altar of incense. What is an altar about? Sacrifice. This is why Paul says, this is Romans chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to submit your lives as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Sacrifice. We don't like that in our flesh. Um. There's great joy in the spirit. So what is that sacrifice? That sacrifice is literally laying ourselves aside for the sake of others. It's laying ourselves aside for the sake of others. Well, where's the example of that? The ultimate example is the cross. Amen? This is what Daniel's doing here as he's interceding. Lord, I did this. We've done these things. We're rebels. We need your mercy. He's interceding. He's calling out on behalf of the nation. He's not confessing his... I mean, I'm not saying Daniel was a perfect person and had nothing to confess. But what he... He's the example of how you live righteous in the midst of those who are living unrighteously. And how you do that is by identifying with those who are unrighteous and call out on their behalf. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? What else do we observe? The whole rationale for God's basis to decide in Israel's favor, the whole rationale was to glorify the name of God. For God's city, for God's people, for God's reputation, for restoring his glory. When we seek to glorify his name in what we're about, in our cities, amongst our people, in the church. Reputation is huge. I, I remember one day, I've worked in construction for years, um, and and I've worked in construction probably over 40 years. Oops, I probably shouldn't have said how old I was, anyway. Um, can't tell you how many times I've been with subcontractors said, you know, the last person I want to work for again is a church. I don't want to work for church people. To we, we went over this in studying the Ten Commandments. To take the name of the Lord in vain literally means to call yourself a believer and to not act in a way that's becoming to his name, not bring glory to his name. It's the same thing is going forward in marriage and taking the name of the person to whom you married 
and then and then defiling the name of the person you married. And so what's what's the rationale for 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 Daniel to to call out for favor for grace? The word in Hebrew chen is uh, uh, is the is the word from which we get um, the concept of grace favor. Um. Uh, the whole, the whole uh, rationale behind that is bringing glory to God's name. Why? What happens? See, so some people could back, well, why is it all about, you know, bringing glory to his name? What is the character and nature of God in one word? Love. The character and nature of God is love. And I would put three things, three things together that you would see in him, love, light, and life. You could also act, add truth, uh, uh, goodness, and beauty and power. When you glorify his name, what have you just done? Brought love, 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 life, light, truth, goodness, beauty, and power. Glorify your name, Lord. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. Forgive. Mercy. Now, what's fascinating here is he's not only following a pattern that he reads in Jeremiah. He's following the pattern of Moses. This interceding he's doing here is exactly what Moses did. The Israelites just saw the power of God over and over, destroyed the most powerful nation on the land, opened the Red Sea, walked across it on dry land, saw the army of Egypt decimated, and now they're offering to golden cows. And God's like, I'm done. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll raise up a nation from you, Moses. And what does Moses do? Same thing. God, what would your name be among the nations if that happened? Have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. And he calls upon God to glorify his name. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. The place where your name is is desolate, Lord. Return your name to that place. O God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So, that's where we leave. Leave hopefully with, with a cry on our own hearts. To want to call on God to declare, make his name glorified in our own land, in our own nation, among our own people. Among the church, uh, to see to to have that heart of prayer, that heart of intercession, to desire to want to carry out that great commission, to to be participants, to want to embrace the cross. Now, what's fascinating, as if anything else wasn't, this prayer brings on an incredibly unexpected answer, and we're going to get into that next time. It, this is the one time I said this earlier in the intro. 
Um, this is the one time we see in the book of Daniel where the supernatural happens as a result of the prayer, not the prayer happening as a result of the supernatural. This is a moment where Daniel's crying out, and now he has a supernatural experience. And we'll talk about that next time. Um, I'll tell you ahead of time, we won't walk away with any level of satisfaction that we totally understand the 70 weeks. But we'll explore them. <laughs> and we'll have fun because it is the word of God. And we will know we can trust his word and trust his sovereignty in it. We'll see some solutions. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do, um, after I finish praying, we, we've got a few minutes. Um, if anyone has any questions or comments that they would like to bring up, we'd love to hear them. This is a chance to kind of to bring something up. And then after we do that, we'll close out. Um, but I do have an announcement I want to make first. Actually, let me pray first. Father, we do. We pray. We call on you. We thank you that we call on the same great God that Daniel called on. You are the God of heaven and earth. You are the creator. And you have made a way for us in your mercy to be washed and cleansed of our rebellion, to be brought into the family of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And in that death, he became sin that we might become his righteousness. Lord, I pray we would have a fresh revelation of prayer itself, of who you are, of interceding, and that as we reflect on Daniel, may we reflect on our lives to be like Daniel, to be like those great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, and to be faithful in our generation just as those who have gone before us were faithful. May we be found faithful. Father, you put us here in this time, in this place, for your good purposes. May our lives not be about the blip of our purposes, but may they be about the overall plan of your purposes. Help us to hunger and desire those and to want to live those things out. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. One announcement, and then you can uh, turn off. Next Wednesday, we're doing something special. Not like this. I, not, I think this is special, but in case you all don't. Um, uh, Pastor Zeke has asked me to come into the youth and do a teaching on the watchers. And so I'm going to be doing a teaching on the watchers over there, and we're all invited to come. We'll have some chairs set up in the back so you all can hear it as well. And you also there will be a Q&A time afterwards. To, to kind of talk about it, so I'll do kind of a brief teaching on the on the watchers who they are and kind of open it up for Q um, and A. And like anybody not heard of the watchers before? Okay, one. Anybody else not heard of the watchers? No. Okay, it's okay. I mean, it's only you only see the term in the Bible two or three times, so I'm not expecting everybody has. So the watchers are they are supernatural beings who are. Uh, carrying out authority in the world on behalf of God. Um, and uh, that's that's who they are, and we'll just leave it at that. That's a commercial. You want more information, you got to come next week. We'll be over there, though, and, um, uh, and we'll be doing that over there. Second thing I want to say is I do send my notes out. If you want to get on the email for the notes, please come see me. Just write your email down for me. And um, and I will put you on the list to receive notes. I've got about seven or eight people who are getting it right now. So if you don't want to be on a regular basis, tell me, 
and um and I'll send send my notes out to you. Um, that said, let's let Sally turn this off, and I'll open up to I, I do the Q and A with 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 without being on the internet, so, so people can ask questions and not worry about it getting recorded. So let let her turn us 